collection of truths that Christians for a very, very long time have affirmed as true. Um, and we're covering just a chunk of it each week, just so we can get a better understanding of what, uh, what it is that we're proclaiming when we recite this creed, the Apostles' Creed. And uh, last week we uh, adjusted it. It's not a, a CFC proprietary thing, uh, but many churches that do that. So if it sounds a little different, it might be a little bit different because the language is a little updated. If you're uh, used to a tradition where they read it in older sounding language, uh, it might sound a little different because that piece about descending to hell is not there. And if you missed last week and you're curious about that, you can go ahead and listen to that uh, message, uh, which is online. But I want to ask you to stand, and as we've been doing the past several weeks, we'll read the green font together, which is the portions of the creed that we've covered already in the sermons, and then I'll read to you the portion that we'll cover today, which will come in, in the white uh, letters. Let's read together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. That's the part that shouldn't be there. We'll get that taken care of. Uh, but on the third day, He rose again. Now here's the piece that we'll cover today. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Uh, please be seated. Now if there's any portion of the creed or any doctrinal statement that is maybe the least paid attention to, it might be Jesus' ascension. Because I think for many of us it's just kind of like, okay, he went up. And we, it's time to get to work. You know, uh, Christmas, when he's born, that has its own holiday. We have a Good Friday service, right? Easter service. Easter is big. Um, but Ascension, uh, there are traditions that celebrate Ascension Day, right? 40 days after the resurrection. But um, for, for many churches, Ascension Day is not familiar. And for many of us, Ascension Day probably comes and goes and we don't know what happened. It's not on our calendar um, and it's not often celebrated. What's the big deal with Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father. And my hope uh, this morning is that you'll get a better understanding uh, after some verses that we'll look at today as to what the ascension means for you. And I pray and hope that you would leave encouraged as I've been encouraged uh, returning to this theme this week. Uh, we're going to put the first verse up on the screen for you. A uh, short passage in Luke chapter 24, and here's the end of the Gospel of Luke, a long Gospel. Jesus is going to leave His disciples, it says in verse 50, then He led them out, the disciples, as far as Bethany, and lifting up His hands, He blessed them. While He blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. <laughs> not, no, not a bunch of details and explanation, He gives a little more details and acts, but, but he, he left, he, he was carried up. Uh, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Now, if that sounds to you like he left them and they're like, yes! <laughs> yeah, they left with great joy. You know, let's go have a worship service. Jesus is gone. Like, does that sound a little counterintuitive? 
Well, it was counterintuitive when you read through the Gospel of John in chapter 16, Jesus telling them, I'm departing from you, and he, can, he discerns that their hearts are filled with great sorrow. Of course they were sorrowful. But then you get to the actual ascension, and the way Luke records it, they return with joy. So there's understanding something between John 16 and Luke 24. There's, they're understanding something that they didn't get before, and now they get. Now to be fair, when he told them, I'm going to depart from you, that was prior to the cross. And when he, when they, when he ascended, uh, not only did, he, did they see the resurrection, but he spent time with them, ministering to them, teaching them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. So there's a lot of preparation to get their hearts from despondency to delight, to get them from sorrow to joy. Uh, so we have to be taught there. It's not enough to just be like, you should be encouraged because I said so or because you're supposed to. A Christian is supposed to be joyful. You can be taught there. You understand? Right? You can be ministered to there. And I think it's not enough to just say, Jesus ascended, we're supposed to be happy about that but to understand the ascension and allow that understanding to lead us and move us toward joy. And some of you may feel sorrowful this morning because there's a sense in which you feel like Jesus has departed you. Maybe you started off strong, you gave your life to Christ, and you started moving along, and then you failed. You feel like there's no way I can get back on the track. Jesus can forgive me one time, but two times... <laughs> Or he can forgive me small stuff, but this big thing? Some of us has test have testimony where we were really messed up before we came to Christ, and then we came to Christ, and then he brought us in, and we understand that forgiveness. But how about we were messed up, and we came to Christ, and then we messed up again? And maybe some of us are stuck in that, that kind of sorrow. I think the ascension of Jesus Christ speaks to that. So I want to take you to Acts chapter 1 so that we can understand why the disciples were full of joy instead of full of sorrow that Christ left, which is backwards. Don't you wish you could see Jesus? Don't you wish you could sit with Jesus? Aren't you jealous of the disciples that they got to hang out with him, sit with him, eat with him, that he cooked for them, that he physically washed their feet, that he spent time with them? This is better. Jesus not being here is better. So Jesus taught. That might sound backwards. It might sound counterintuitive. Of course we're supposed to long to see Jesus again. But this time is necessary. Jesus ascending and us being left here. Look at Acts chapter 1. The disciples are joy-filled and joyous because Jesus gave them promises that are attached to the ascension, to his ascension. He gave them promises that they can cling to that are only true if Jesus ascends. So if you look in Acts chapter 1, you'll see uh, Luke, uh, Luke is writing this as well. This is sort of his sequel. This is sort of like Luke part 2. Uh, and it says that he taught them, verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Uh, you remember... Thomas touching his side and things like that, eating in front of them, eating with them, appearing to them f during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now these guys are really 
jacked about the kingdom. They're, they're sick of Rome. They're sick of Israel not being on the map the way it should be. And they want Jesus to come and be the king that he's supposed to come. That's why they were so uh, disappointed about his arrest and crucifixion and getting slapped around and punched and mocked rather than doing the mocking as God does in the Psalms. So now he's teaching them, showing them why this had to happen, that this is bigger than they even thought. And then in verse 6, they had come together to ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, obviously, that's debated. Some people are saying he's, he's, they, they mean physically, physical Israel only, the geographical land. Other people say, you know, the, the disciples already understand that this is bigger than that. We're not going to get into all of that. I want you to see Christ's response to it in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Why are we in this passage? Because that's the last thing he said. Then he ascends. The ascension has everything to do with what he just said. Verse 9, he says, When he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. See, a little bit more detail. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, they're just standing there, you know, gawking at the sky. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the angels are telling them, Hey, he's going to come back. He came to be born and to suffer and die and resurrect, to conquer death. He's leaving. Something has to get done now, and then Jesus comes back. We're sandwiched in between the two comings of Christ, the first coming when he was born and the second coming that's promised, right? Okay. So for that middle piece to happen, Jesus had to leave. He had to ascend for this middle portion to happen where we're supposed to get busy doing what? Okay, being, being his witnesses, making disciples, expanding the kingdom, right? Beyond the walls of Jerusalem, beyond the borders of Israel, but to even Samaria and the end of the earth. And so this mission is happening while Jesus is ascended. And he promises the power of the Holy Spirit to get that job done in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. None of us are effective witnesses because we're really charismatic, because we took a how to influence people seminar, because we listened to a few TED Talks, because we're really good with closing a deal. You're an effective witness because the Holy Spirit's power is upon you. That's what makes any witness effective. Even when you're stumbling over yourself, and you're like, I didn't even explain that right. And it turns out that they grasped the gospel, even though, though you thought you fumbled it, the, the Spirit is using that moment. It's the power of the Spirit that makes us witnesses. That wouldn't be available to us if Jesus didn't ascend. Jesus made that clear in John chapter 16 when he tells the disciples, uh, as their hearts are filled with sorrow, he explains to them, if I don't go, the helper won't come. But if I go, the helper comes. And the helper, help you what? Help you get a job, help you with your dating relationships, help you be witnesses. 
Why do I say that? Because he tells the disciples, the helper is going to come. If I leave, the helper will come and convict the world of sin. You're not going to convict anybody of anything. The Holy Spirit's going to do it. And the Holy Spirit's going to teach those who are convicted about righteousness. And the Holy Spirit is going to demonstrate that I rule the world now, not Satan. So the ascension is about Christ's power and his rule. And he's showing the disciples, don't worry about the time when there, are, there is no wickedness and there are no soldiers that are trying to st- stamp out Christianity when there is no persecution. God is going to fix that time when he wants to. And all of us here can individually figure out where Israel, the nation, fits into that. There are different interpretations of that. But I think everybody agrees Jesus is going to consummate his full reign later, but it starts now. He's not punting it down the field like, ah. It's starting now, and it starts through his people and through the church as their witnesses, powerful witnesses to the gospel. So that's what we're supposed to be doing, and the only way we can do it is if Jesus ascends and we're given this promised Holy Spirit. If you want to know whether the Holy Spirit is showing up in your life, you might wonder, when is the last time you served as a witness? This is what He motivates us to do. This is what He empowers us to do, is to be witnesses in this expanding kingdom. We get to be a part of that because Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father, ruling it, reigning it, overseeing all of it through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As you read through Scripture, that right hand means Stephen is getting stoned, right? Six chapters from now, Stephen is getting stoned. He looks up, he sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? That Jesus has the power. Jesus has the rule. Jesus has the scepter. He is the king. You remember when we looked at Ephesians 4 last, last Sunday that uh, Paul talks about the ascension as almost a coronation service. He, Jesus receives that, that kingdom and he leads captives in his uh, wake and he gives gifts to the church and so the ascension is Jesus being the king through the father's authority that he's given him so that the church can do the work of uh, being witnesses to the end of the earth now, that's a powerful thing so we should rejoice in that we should rejoice in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and I'm excited to talk about the Holy Spirit when we get to that piece in the, uh, in the creed. Because the Holy Spirit is the consummate background player. Right? It's Father and Son, and Spirit doesn't get a whole lot of play, airtime. Um, there are circles and there are churches where Holy Spirit maybe gets too much airtime. He's his background player. He inspires the text. And, and it's like the Spirit is inspiring this text and doesn't talk as much about Himself. He presents the Father and He puts the, the Son in front of us. But it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are witnesses. He's not the force. It's not a feeling. It's a person. He's God. And He's powerful. And we can lean on Him to be more than we ever could be without Him. But, if you're like me, you might look at this and not think about how many, how many opportunities you've had to really demonstrate the power of the Spirit. You might be thinking how many opportunities you missed to be a witness. You might be thinking about botched opportunities. 
And we botch opportunities different ways. We botch opportunities because we didn't say it right, we didn't plan it, you know, we're, we're, we're not doing well. But we, we botch opportunities by sometimes moral failures. You know, Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about being salt to the earth and being light, he's not talking about preaching the gospel with your mouth. He's talking about preaching the gospel with your life because he says, you know, they'll see your good works. They'll see your good works. And maybe some of you are like, man, what good works? I've really messed up. How can my neighbor ever listen to me present the gospel when they know I did this? What, what, is there, what, what, is, what path is there forward for me to be a, an effective witness for Jesus Christ when I've not served him well? And I want to focus on how the ascension is crucial to answer that question. Because the ministry of Jesus in his ascension at the Father's right hand is to intercede for you. The activity of the incarnate Jesus Christ now, still incarnate, he didn't leave his body behind and his spirit floated into heaven. Jesus, the man, ascended. And there is a human at the right hand of the Father right now, fully man and fully God, mediating for us, interceding to the Father for you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, your hope is in Jesus Christ, you're a Christian. Jesus is praying for you. Now, I know that we sometimes develop a, as a culture, uh, we sort of cheapen prayer. You post something on Facebook, and then a bunch of people put hearts and thumbs up, and they're like, oh, praying for you. You ever wonder, are they really praying for me, or do they just write praying for you, and then they keep going about their day? And So we might cheapen it. I, I've caught myself sometimes like, hey, man, I'm praying for you. And then I'm like, Man, I, I didn't pray. So I, I've tried to develop the habit of, if I'm going to type that, if I'm going to text somebody or email somebody or over the phone tell somebody, hey, I'm praying for you, I'd rather say, I just prayed for you. So I'll, I'll hold off the keyboard for a second. It doesn't take five hours. I'm not promising I interceded, I fasted for you for three days. I'm just saying, I took your request and I brought it to the Father for you as a brother. That shouldn't be flippant. And if you, if, if you have people in your life you know that are sincere and they tell you, hey, I was praying for you today, I know for me there's not many things that are more uplifting than that. When somebody tells me they've been praying for me, if I get the sense they really mean that, that they really prayed, that is important. Why is it important? Because my mom said it. And I know when she mean, what she means by prayer is lights out, door closed, everything off at the, at the side of her bed. My stepdad says, I'll pray for you. I know he's literally in his closet. He moves his clothing out of the way and closes the closet door and he goes on his face in the closet. That's, I know they mean they're praying. What if Jesus promises, I'm praying for you? Well, God, God bless my mom, but everything she prays doesn't necessarily come into existence. We have, we're, we're fallible, right? We don't always discern God's will correctly. And what the Bible teaches about effective prayer, prayer is effective when you pray prayer according to the will of the Father. That's what Jesus means when he says, if you pray in my name, you'll get anything you ask. 
Because Jesus is always in accord with the Father, and if your prayer is truly in Jesus' name, your prayer isn't in Jesus' name just because you slap those words on at the end of a prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Father, please kill this person. I hate him. In Jesus' name. Right? You don't get to just attach Jesus' name to something and it suddenly, it's not abracadabra. They're not magic words, like parents telling children, all you have to say is the magic word and I'll give it to you. Well, no, I want you to say please, and I want you to be appropriate in your language as you approach me as a father and asking, but you won't get it by virtue of asking nicely. The thing that you're asking for has to be in accordance with my will. I'm not going to give you something that's going to hurt you, right? Now, we try to pray in accordance with the Father's will. We try to discern the Father's will. This is why it's so important to pray Scripture. If you're praying Scripture, you know you're praying the Father's will. I think this is what James is talking about when he says praying a prayer of faith. And if you pray the prayer of faith, it will happen. It's getting to that point where you know this is what God wants for you. So if you pray according to Scripture, you know that. Now Jesus doesn't misstep. Jesus doesn't pray not according to the Father's will. And the ministry of Jesus' intercession at the Father's side is not Jesus trying to convince a grumpy, angry, mean God to do something for you, uh, fine, that he otherwise wouldn't want to do. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. This whole thing is the Father's idea. So Jesus isn't up there trying to convince the Father to not be grumpy. Jesus is up there praying in accordance with the Father's will for you for your encouragement, for your perseverance. Even if you failed, what you cling to is not your performance. What you cling to, even in failure, even when you've disappointed God, even when you've grieved the Spirit, even when you've messed up really bad, what you cling to is the ministry of Jesus Christ on the cross, that He's made it forgiveness available to you, and He, kept press, he keeps pressing that availability of forgiveness to you through the ministry of prayer. Jesus prays. He didn't just pray while he was here. He prays now. It's his active, ongoing ministry on your behalf. That is amazing. Let's look at a couple of verses. The first one I want you to turn to is Luke chapter 22. If you were in Acts already, just turn back a couple. Toward the end of Luke, and in chapter 22, I just want to remind you of Peter's failure. You know, could we just talk about Peter's failure for a minute? And I don't think he's in heaven looking down on all these sermons about his failure, like, oh, you're bringing that up again? I think it's a source of, it's a source of great joy because he didn't stay there. But look at verse 54, Luke 22. I just want to remind you what happened here. Peter's, look, he's, he's a leader. He's vocal. He's brave. There's, you know, we, we give Peter a hard time, but there's a lot of great things about Peter. He is energetic, and he's zealous. And, um, you know, he didn't run when, the, when, the, when they came to arrest Jesus. He pulled his sword out. I don't know what the other disciples are doing, but Peter was ready to throw down, like, let's go wasn't until Peter said, stop it, or until Jesus told Peter to stop. 
verse 54, Jesus has been arrested. It says, They seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. They recognized him because he was, he was a vocal punk before, right? He was right next to Jesus. So, yeah, what he said. Get out of the way. Right? They recognize him, and he says, man, I am not. Verse 59, and after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you were talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. You remember Jesus predicted it, said, you will deny me three times. And that was the signal. Cockle-doodle-doo. You're a traitor. Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Oh, man, (laughs) that's messed up. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out, he wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Repentance is never flippant. If you feel crushed by the weight of your sin, good. If you didn't feel the crushing weight of your sin, you have a problem. But if you understand the weight of your betrayal and the difficulty of your your moral failure, that's the starting place. But what's amazing is you have this this, uh, juxtaposition between Peter and Judas. Judas ends up hanging himself, and Peter ends up taking the keys of the church and marching this whole thing forward. How does Peter become this first hero of the church? where he does drink the cup of suffering, and he does get martyred for Jesus, and he does go to his death for Christ. How does Peter preach the first sermon of the church at Pentecost? Surviving the onslaught of persecution while doing that, ministering. He writes two of the books of the New Testament, how do we get to that Peter, this Peter who is betraying Jesus just because a couple people said, hey, weren't you with him? What's the transformation? Well, the transformation is in the same chapter. If you look back earlier in chapter 22, look at verse 33. There's eager Peter again. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Let's go. I'll die. I'll suffer. I'll starve. I'll be torn away from my family. I'll forsake my career. I'll go to prison. I'll go to death for you. Let's go. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. You're not going to last 12 hours, dude. Peter predicted it, or Jesus predicted it. But he didn't just predict his failure, he predicted his restoration. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, 
that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you see that there? Jesus has a prayer request that he wouldn't ultimately fail. Well, he did fail. He denied, but he didn't ultimately fail. Do you see that difference? Christians will mess up. You can have a moral failure. What do you do in that moment? That's what decides. Are you a Christian? Turn. Turn again. Cling to the forgiveness that's offered to you in Jesus Christ. Recognize you don't perform by your works. You perform a result of Christ's work and cling to that. The non-Christian is the one that just keeps being calloused by their sin and moving away from God and not repenting, not weeping about it, not feeling sore about it, not feeling the weight of it. But Jesus offers the prayer request and already knows what the answer is going to be to his prayer request. He has prayed that Peter's faith will not fail ultimately. And then he tells Peter, and when you have turned again, in other words, you're going to leave, you're going to step aside, you're going to fail. But when you get restored, minister hard. Strengthen the other brothers around you. I'm going to use your re-strengthening. I'm going to use your dip into failure and back in, onto the path. I'm going to use that to strengthen the other brothers around you. I'm going to use that failure and restoration to make you lead and help the people around you. It's not enough for Jesus to just say, you, you failed, I'm going to put you back, but you're going to go to the back of the pack. You failed, and I'm going to put you in the front of the pack. Can God still use you? Yes. Why? All you have to do is go home and fix it. All you have to do is go home and make three commitments for the new year. No, go home and trust that Jesus is praying for you. You remember the book of Job? Uh, Satan approaches the father, and he wants to have his way with Job. And the father's like, well, you can, but only this far. Right? Some of you remember that passage. What's well, the same thing here? Simon, Satan demanded to have you. Satan is approaching God like, I want Peter. Give me Peter. Maybe he's taunting God in a similar way that he did with Job. If you didn't have Peter, you wouldn't have any of the disciples. Peter's weak. As soon as you're taken away and arrested, as soon as Christ is, Jesus is taken away and arrested, he's, he's going to fail. I want him. And Jesus steps in and goes, Father, keep him. So why is Peter not ultimately a failure? Because Jesus prayed. It is, it is the intercessory work of Jesus Christ that gets Peter going, that keeps Peter in the lane. You trust that? Now you might go, well, if I know that, I'm just going to kind of take the back seat. And, well, that's not true, because then Jesus wouldn't have told him that. It's not demotivating to know that the reason why you succeed spiritually is that Jesus is praying for you. It's motivating. That's why Jesus gave it to Peter. I think Peter remembered more than Jesus just saying, you're going to deny me three times. I think he remembered the whole conversation. He remembered when Jesus looked at him. He remembered Jesus predicted that he was going to fail. I think eventually at some point he also remembered Jesus' promise. I pray for you. Satan wanted to sift you. See what you're made of. 
I prayed. And Jesus is so confident in the effectiveness of his prayer, he says, so when you come back, minister, feed my sheep, let's go. That's amazing. Jesus prays for Peter. Peter succeeds, and he succeeds not just because Jesus predicted it, but because he prayed it. Jesus didn't predict it because he's like, I can tell what's going to happen. I prayed it, and that's why it's going to happen. I want you to turn to one more passage that we'll close with. We'll put two more up on the screen really quick, but the, the last passage to turn to, I want you to mark this, know it. If you're not familiar with Romans 8, my goodness, read it over and over. If you're discouraged, I want you to spend time in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, verse 31. We'll go to 35. Here's Paul writing. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What do you need? What do you need to survive? What do you need to be restored? What do you need to bounce back from your failure? God is going to supply you with all things. And you realize this is the Father's idea. Jesus isn't like, come on, Father, please. And the Father's like, no, I I, I hate her. I hate him. No, 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 please. It's, It's not that. It's the Father's idea. It's the Father's plan. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? He didn't spare his own son, but gave his son why? So that you can have all the grace that you need. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So uh, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you there'll come a time where you will never remember your failure. It'll just, be, it'll just be burned out of your mind. You'll never remember it. I think you're going to remember it forever. Why would we worship the lamb if we don't remember the sin that caused the lamb to die? In eternity, worthy is the Lamb. We're getting crowns and we're like, crown? why am I wearing a crown? And we cast those crowns before him because we're completely unworthy. How do I know I'm unworthy? Because I remember. But I'm not forever crushed by it. We're not weeping bitterly forever. All the tears are dried up. Why? Because we know, yeah, I remember it, but I see what's in front of me that reminds me it is nailed to the cross. So he gives his son to minister to you, to give you all the grace that you need, so that what? No charge can come against you. So if you remember what you did and it it reminds you of God's grace, that's a beautiful thing. If you remember what you did and it makes you feel like God can't love me, that's the devil. That's demonic. Because it's untrue and he's the father of lies. If you've been forgiven in Jesus Christ, you're forgiven. You're not forgiven today and then it wears thin and then there's an expiration date and you've got to go get something else. Whatever you've done, whatever makes you feel like you could never be a good witness for Jesus Christ, it's a lie. Why? Because it really wasn't that bad after all? No, it's probably worse than you think it is. It should probably be crushing you harder than it actually is. Why, why are we saying this then? Why do we get grace because God is the one who justifies. 
If God said, you trust in Jesus Christ, you are justified. I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's what God said. Then believe that. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Who's to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. He didn't just die. He was raised. And not just raised, he ascended, right? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? So if Jesus is interceding for us, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? You might feel like you don't have the strength to be a witness in the face of a sword, You may feel like you don't have the strength to be a witness in the face of having coffee at Starbucks and just talking to somebody who's an unbeliever. You don't feel courageous. You don't feel like you're brave. But we have a promise to cling to. And our failures don't separate us from the love of Christ, and neither shall any opposition that comes against us for the name and the sake of Jesus Christ. Why? How do we know that even if I failed in the past, I can succeed this time? Maybe I failed over here, but if I move forward and trust Christ for forgiveness, I can be the witness that I'm supposed to be. I can, I can do good works in the name of Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Because God is saying He's going he's to do it through Christ and the love of Christ that is yours so that even tribulation and distress coming at you will not separate you Ultimately, something much less than a sword came Peter's way and he denied Jesus. But Jesus prayed for him and then the sword actually came and he leaned in. And that changes because of the intercession of Jesus Christ. Two verses quickly on the screen just to back this up. I just want this, this is something we don't often talk about. The first John chapter 2 is the advocate verse. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Ah, but I did. Well, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now, John continues to talk about that's different than the person that keeps on sinning, doesn't care, you bring it up, they don't repent. That's not a believer. The believer is the person that messes up and just needs to be reminded, ugh, I have forgiveness in Jesus Christ, and that's the only way I stay a witness for Christ. The other verse is Hebrews chapter 7, 23 and 24. The former priests, you remember the priests in the Old Testament? We went through uh, Leviticus together. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing, continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continued forever continues doing what consequently he's to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them how is jesus saving you how does jesus make it possible that you can continue to draw near to god even though you sin you remember the priests of the old testament they would sin they bring the sacrifice they would sin they bring the sacrifice right jesus does that one time for all who are in him and he lives an intercession for you to keep applying the power of the atonement into your life and over your life. 
So rather than looking at the record of our failures, we look at the record of Christ's success and the success of his mediation and prayer ministry for us. That is not something to take flippantly. That is something to be massively encouraged about. I don't know how many of us have thought about Christ's uh, prayer ministry, but I want us to. And as we read the creed in the future and we think about Jesus Christ at the right hand of God, he's not just chilling out. He's not like, I did my part, you guys do the rest. We can't. We can't. So Jesus essentially taught his disciples It's really cool. I like being with you guys, but I can be with you and I can be with you, but I need to be with the Father overseeing all this stuff. And the ministry of the omnipresent Holy Spirit is going to actuate the things that I pray for you to the Father. That high priestly prayer in John 17, he prays for the disciples that he knows, but also to those who will come to faith through the disciples. So when you read Jesus' prayer in John 17, he's praying about you. The closest thing you'll have to finding your own name in the Bible is John 17, where he prays for those who will believe through the ministry of the disciples. And he prays for our unity. He prays for our togetherness. He prays for our sharing in God's glory together that we'll make it and be the people that he's called us to be, not on the backs of our own merits, not because uh, God is calling the people who have performed the best. He's calling for people who will cling to Christ's work on the cross, and then Jesus continues to press that in his prayer for you. God is not looking on you like, man, what a failure. I can't use you. He's going, okay, there's failure there. Let's use it. Let's restore you. Let's get you on track. Let's get you moving forward so that you can minister to other brothers and sisters around you. God wants to use you so that one day when someone approaches you and says, man, I really messed up, you can talk to them about restoration because you've experienced it and you cling to it. And the only way that's possible is because Jesus prays it. Let's join them in that prayer now as the worship team comes back up.